We are in our fifth lesson of biblical theology, and I started out by quoting Andy Nacelli's definition of biblical theology. He defines it in this way. Um, Biblical theology is a way of analyzing and synthesizing the Bible that makes organic salvation historical connections with the whole canon on its own terms, especially regarding how the Old and New Testaments progress, integrate, and climax in Christ. And one of the key features of that definition is that we're reading the Bible on its own terms. So for the last two lessons, I critiqued dispensational and covenantal theologies because they impose an external structure on the text. So instead of reading the Bible on its own terms, they read it through the grid of dispensations or through the grid of these three overarching covenants. And um, I tried to suggest along the way that if we're going to read the Bible on its own terms, we should read kind of filtering through the progression of the biblical covenants along the way. So we'll get into that a little bit more today. Um, and once again, I just want to, to make clear that I'm primarily drawing on the book Kingdom Through Covenant by Gentry and Wellam. And so these things are not original to me. Um, there are other people who are saying these things as well. Um, but let's start by thinking about reading the Bible and doing theology. And when we talk about reading the Bible, we, we need to understand that it's God's word to us, right? So there are individual human authors along the way, but they're speaking as they're moved by the Holy Spirit, they're writing these things down. And because there's a divine author fundamentally responsible for, for the scriptures, we should expect an overall unity and coherence between the Testaments, shouldn't we? It's the same God who's writing the same redemptive story through time, taking different form. And so even though uh, there are different human authors who, who have a message to declare. There's sometimes what we might call a fuller meaning to what they're saying, to where these authors are writing better than they know, and later biblical authors pick up on the things earlier biblical authors write, and they reveal a fuller meaning to, to what they say. So, for example, last night I got a text from, from a guy at another church saying he's talking with a Jewish friend, and um, this friend told him that the text in Isaiah that talks about the virgin who will give birth, that it's mistranslated, and it, it shouldn't be virgin. And he's, he said, help, what do I do, what do I say? And, and uh, I just told him, you know, actually, probably a really good translation would just be young woman there. Um, it could be translated either way. But the New Testament authors look back on this and they show us that there's a fuller meaning there because that text meant something to its original readers and none of them thought a virgin will conceive. They thought a young woman will, will you know, conceive a baby in, in the way that all young women conceive babies. They didn't think something miraculous was happening there. But as the New Testament authors look back on this, they reveal what we might call a fuller meaning. And, and the technical term is census plenier. You don't need to know that, but that's what it refers to. It's this fuller meaning. Now, um, there's, there's a question that, that comes up between, you know, different ways of reading and looking at the Bible. And the question is, should we believe that there's a fuller meaning here when the New Testament authors point it out? And virtually everyone will say, kind of yes, but we need to restrict it and say that it can't contravene or disagree with the original author's intent. And I think that's right. Um, but we also have to say these things are a little bit more complex than that. And as we look at the way that 
later biblical authors use earlier biblical text, um, they, they reveal a fuller meaning there that I don't think the original readers were expected to see. Totally. It's sometimes they were, right? Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for not seeing him in Moses. Uh, but there are also things revealed by the later biblical authors that I don't think anyone conceivably could have understood. It's through the inspiration and, and leading of the Spirit. Um, so we'll pick up on this idea of fuller meaning later on in our lesson when we get to typology. But my point is, we're reading the Bible, understanding there's a divine author. And so we expect more um, coherence between the Testaments and we can understand that this is a unique book in a way, and in that perhaps the, the Lord in earlier sections of Scripture starts to introduce redemptive themes and ideas that won't become clear until later on. So in that way, we, we could talk about it in, with two analogies. We could talk about it like a puzzle where uh, you um, have pieces that are scattered about and they start getting put together and later biblical authors can see the picture on the box more clearly than the people who just did the edges of the puzzle. And, and now we, from our, you know, from our perspective, look back at the full revelation and see how even early on, the corners of the puzzle start to show the full picture, e even though it didn't make sense maybe when you're just looking at the corners of the puzzle. The other analogy would be a mystery novel to where you're reading this, and, and the mystery is progressively revealed and in a feature or detail of the story that appears in the first chapter takes on really great significance by the last chapter. And to say that, oh, this phrase understood this way was understood rightly in the first chapter, but there's a whole fuller meaning that we came to see at the, by the end of the story, right? Um, so we, we need to pick up on these things, and then we need to understand that the Bible's literature. And so there are features of literature that are masterfully crafted and embedded in, in the, you know, plain sense, perhaps, is a fuller meaning that we'll only understand with later reflection. This is true in normal literature as well, okay? So um, there's, there's this series um, written by J.K. Rowling, and she has in there this location called Nocturne Alley in, in the Harry Potter books. And um, Nocturne Alley is the name of this kind of dark and um, like scary section of town. Uh, but if you are listening to the audiobooks, instead of just reading it, what you hear if you're listening to it on two speed instead of one speed is nocturnally. She's just taken, you know, nocturnally, this, this word for night, nighttime activity, and assigned the name of this dark and um, criminal nighttime activity location, that, that same word, right? Nocturne alley, nocturnally. So as we look at the way literature works, even there we can start to see how there's more to a word or an idea than there first appears. Same thing, another location she has is Diagon Alley. Once again, if you listen to that on two speed, you just hear diagonally, you know? So, so she's very cleverly assigning names to things that take on, you know, a fuller, fuller meaning down the road. Um, the same thing is true in other mystery novels and series that you would read in the Bible's literature. So we should expect some of these things to appear as well, I think. All right. Any comments or questions on, on that idea of there can be a fuller meaning perhaps than we might first recognize? Okay, we'll come back to that idea in a moment. I want to um, give you three horizons of biblical interpretation 
uh, because when you read a text, you need to take in its full context. And this guy, Richard Lentz, proposes that we read the Bible on three horizons, a textual, epical, or epochal, if you want to pronounce it that way, and canonical horizon. I'm going to leave a lot of this with you to consider on your own, but I want to start textual horizon. All that's saying is we have to start reading the Bible somewhere, and that somewhere is an individual text, and so you need to think about that text context. So when you read a verse, you need to think about the the sentences that surround it, the paragraphs that come before and after it, and then the book that it's in. That's its textual horizon. Considering a verse on this level will keep you from reading something like Philippians 4.13 about being able to do all things through Christ who strengthens you and suggesting that Christ will enable your your favorite team to win the, the Super Bowl. You know, the textual horizon guards us against those sort of really bad proof texting that, that grabs these isolated verses and copies and pastes them into whatever situation of life we want them to be in. So we need the textual horizon. We all know this. Um, and I think that everyone here would, would read the Bible that way, rightly thinking about its context. But we need to expand the context to the next horizon, which, which is this epochal horizon, we might say, thinking of epics. And I've, I'm suggesting that the epics laid out in Scripture, the, the most comprehensive laying out of epics, is this uh, progression of the biblical covenants. So we want to understand the text in its textual context, but then we need to ask In what covenant is this activity or event or text taking place? Because that's going to give us some interpretive guidelines. Now, I've I've suggested that the dispensational framework is not super helpful, and that the covenant theology framework is not super helpful. But we need to be careful, and I need to be careful as I'm advocating for reading the Bible in in, uh, light of the progression of the biblical covenants, that I don't suggest to you that these are the only epic divisions that we can have because the biblical authors suggest different epic divisions along the way. So for example, um, I've listed some here for you. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew divides redemption history into three major epics, from Abraham to David, from Solomon to exile, and then exile to Christ. Uh, Stephen's sermon in Acts 7 does it slightly differently, um, but the age of the patriarchs, the age of Moses, and then the age of the monarch. Paul expands further in Romans 5, and he gives you the epics uh, from Adam to Moses and then from Moses to Christ, who's the second and last Adam. So there are various ways that you can divide up redemptive history. I would just note that when Matthew is writing and Stephen is preaching and Paul is writing an occasional letter to the Romans, they're not trying to construct a whole Bible biblical theology like we're trying to do. They're, They're facing a particular situation, and with the constraints of their task, they're, they're dividing the epics up in an understandable way. So when Stephen is preaching a sermon, we don't expect him to elaborate on all of the biblical covenants and show how they all unfold. Uh, we we uh, understand he's just trying to make a point in a sermon. Um, so, But what each of these epics have in common is that they are connected, um, especially to covenantal heads, but they're connected to the, the c- biblical covenants. So I would agree with Gentry and Wellam, as I've been arguing all along, that the best division or the best epical assignments are the biblical covenants, starting with the Adamic and ending with the new. All right. Um, The final horizon is this canonical context. So we need to read a text in its own literary context and then in light of which covenant it falls under, but then we need to read it in light of the entire canon. So we want to say that there are inter- 
canonical or intercanonical connections between things in Revelation and Genesis, right? So when Genesis starts with a garden temple or a temple garden, however you want to assign that, and Revelation talks about a temple city, we want to connect these two things. And the biblical authors make it really easy because in the garden temple, there's a tree of life. And in the temple city, there's a tree of life. And um, so the, the biblical authors draw attention to the connections between what they're writing and what earlier authors have written. We shouldn't take this for granted. This is important that the later biblical authors read and reflect on and interpret earlier biblical texts. This doesn't just happen with New Testament authors, but Old Testament authors are reading the Pentateuch and reflecting on it and commenting on it. And so I would suggest that we should pay attention to the way that they interpret Scripture and that we should imitate the way that they interpret Scripture. This is debated. Um, Dispensational theologians would uh, disagree with that. They would say that we shouldn't imitate the way the biblical authors interpret scripture because we're not inspired like they were. We should just observe it and take for granted what they're saying and then apply a strict um, literal, grammatical, exegetical method. Um, But I I think that's misguided. I don't think that's quite right uh, for two reasons. Number one, because the canon has intercanonical connections where it's a living document, you might say. It's a, it's a living word of God, and, and there's a divine author who's, who's drawing things together. And so with Kevin Van Hooser, we need more than common sense when we read the Bible. We need more than a plain reading of the text. We need canon sense. I thought that was very clever of him to uh, move from common sense to canon sense. He says it's on page five there. It's not enough to know facts about the Bible. What is needed is canon sense, the ability to interpret particular passages of scripture in light of the whole Bible. Canon sense means knowing where we are in the flow of redemptive history. Canon sense means thinking not only about, but with the Bible, and I would say with the biblical authors who interpret earlier parts of scripture, to the point of being able to interpret one's own experience with biblical categories in light of the overarching storyline of the Bible. All right. So there, there are three horizons. So every text we read, I think we need to read them in light of those three horizons. The, the textual, the, con- the covenantal, and then the canonical horizons. This is really basic, I think, but it, it can be transformative in the way we read, we read the Bible. Any questions or comments there? Okay, as you can see, this takes patience, doesn't it? Um, this is not, this the, uh, the, the kind of Bible reading that's encouraged by an Instagram picture background with one verse on it um, is not rewarded well. Uh, well, you aren't rewarded well by reading the Bible just like that. Um, but those things, I'm not suggesting we should get rid of those things. I think that's helpful, especially for people who have the contents of the Bible in mind and they can read a verse, you can read a verse and filter it through these categories. But what it does do is it militates against lazy scrolling through the Bible. Uh, you should not just uh, um, look at a verse and then, you know, copy and paste it into wherever you want it to be. We, we need careful meditation on the text of Scripture. Um, we need to read large passages of Scripture together. How will we make intercanonical connections if we never read large passages of Scripture? Um, you're rewarded by taking the time to do that. Um, I first sort of experienced this when I was at Eden teaching a Bible class on the Pentateuch. And um, I, every week, 
as I prepared to teach on one of the books from the Pentateuch, I would take a few hours and sit down and read all of Genesis in one sitting. And then all of Exodus, all of Leviticus, all of Numbers, all of Deuteronomy. And then I spent a whole day just reading the whole Pentateuch all at once. And it was amazing to see the way that Moses crafted those letters. And it would be impossible to sit down and read the Bible all in one sitting. But um, I think if you listen to the audio Bible on an average speed, it's between like 70 and 75 hours long. Um, so it, you really, in, in the space of not too long, could listen to the entire Bible and read the entire Bible. I think that's something that we should um, pursue, that you should pursue, is getting the whole Bible in you, um, even if you don't understand all of it, because now you have the content that you can start working through. Um, you need to start with the, the content, and then you start to work through, what does this mean? We need both of them. Tim. This is, uh, this is <coughs> very good. Um, I think the, 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 difficult, the difficulty sometimes I see with, is with younger Christians helping them to understand because it's, there's, there's this natural sort of zeal. I want to get out there. I want to start interpreting the Bible for myself. And, you know, obviously we want to lean on the Holy Spirit guiding us. But mm -hmm. we also need to recognize that the Holy Spirit works through all of these, you know, these con contextual things. And the Bible wasn't just written in a vacuum. So yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, it's difficult. How do we help new believers do this and read the Bible and interpret it rightly? I started reading Paradise Lost this week in the, the anthology, anthology edition that I'm reading uh, was pointing out that John Milton's father uh, thought it was a travesty that the Bible was translated into English because the church would lose their authority in interpreting the Bible for the people because now people can read it and interpret it for themselves. Well, that's a good thing, but also it can lead to problematic interpretations. Um, so I think we, we need to come to church, hear the Bible preach. Your pastors are trying to work through, study these things. Uh, read the, some of the books that I've suggested to you that will help you see these things. Uh, but really, it does, I think, just come down to reading the Bible over and over again. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think an ideal vacation would be to take two weeks and take the 40-hour work weeks and have 80 hours to read the Bible, and you get it all in in those two weeks. If anyone has ever done that or ever does, let me know. I think, I think that would be a marvelous activity, but we need, to, we need to know what's in the Bible in order to take that whole canon context into view. Okay, I want to move now to what's going to be uh, th I, the, probably the most debated thing that I will talk about in this whole Bible class. I don't think I've said that about this Bible class yet. Um, this will be maybe the most debated and um, in challenging thing. And so I'm going to present something, and I will leave it to you to search the scriptures and see if these things are so. But I, I think what I'll present here should be helpful. Um, if you want to think about more about what I'm talking about, I brought two book recommendations again. The first, we're going to talk about typology, and there's this book called 40 Questions About Typology and Allegory by a guy named Mitchell Chase. Um, in a different Bible class, I recommended Jim Hamilton's book, God's Glory and Salvation Through Judgment. Well, Mitchell Chase was Hamilton's first PhD student, and so what he's thinking would probably dovetail well with that book, but this book on typology and allegory would probably be helpful. And then I, I'm going to give us a case study on how typology works. 
uh, tracing the land promise in the Old Testament. And that's why I say this might be the most debated um, class that I have because it, it, I want to show how the, the land promise develops and finds fulfillment. And there's one chapter in this book by a guy named Oren Martin who I've quoted over and over. He wrote that book, 40 Questions About Biblical Theology. The final chapter in this book is by him about the land promise and typology. So I didn't quote it at all in this lesson, uh, but if you would like a scan of that chapter, if you want to think about the things I talk about more, I'd be happy to send you a scan of that chapter so you can keep thinking about it. All right. Are we ready to, to dive in? Okay. Uh, let's talk about the nature and importance of typology. Typology needs to be distinguished from allegory. Um, I think there actually is a right kind of allegorical reading, and Mitchell Chase gets into that, but there's a bad kind of allegorical reading that's you know, presented in every class on biblical interpretation where we take a look at Augustine's interpretation of the Good Samaritan, and he finds that these, every piece of this story of the Good Samaritan resembles something. Um, so the wounded man resembles Adam, the Samaritan represents Christ, the innkeeper represents Paul, and then there are symbolisms found in the oil and, and everything else. And I would suggest that that's an interesting way to read the, the Good Samaritan parable. Uh, I don't think that I would suggest reading it that way, uh, but what I'm talking about in typology is not that. So sometimes people hear typology and they think wide, far-reaching, spiritual interpretations of text. What I'm talking about is not that. I will try to show that typology has textual warrant uh, where it is found. I need to define typology in a moment, but, but this is not just a far-reaching spiritual interpretation. Um, because typology is debated, arriving at a definition is difficult, so I'm going to use Gentry and Wellam's definition here. They say um, that typology is the study of the Old Testament redemptive historical realities or types, these things could be persons, events, institutions, that God has specifically designed to correspond to and predictively prefigure their intensified antitypical fulfillment um, in the New Testament redemptive history. Uh, so, so what he's saying here is that there are things that appear in the Old Testament that are physical, literal things or events or institutions, and they find fulfillment in Jesus Christ and in, in the new covenant realities that Christ brings into effect. Um, so uh, let me try to jump out of the weeds for a second. When we talk about Adam as a historical figure, we also talk about Adam as a type of Christ. And in fact, Adam would be the, what we might call the archetype of Christ. He's the very first one in a pattern. And um, we'll, we'll use fulfillment terms for this. It's almost like Adam's very existence predicts in an indirect way the coming of Jesus. Um, now there's a next Adam, and that's Noah. And we call Noah not just a type, but an ectype. Okay, so that's the, the technical word, an ectype. He's the next iteration in the pattern. Um, but ultimately, both of these guys point forward to Jesus Christ. That's how typology works. So we would say that um, Christ is the last Adam. He is the anti-type. Um, and it sound, that makes it sound like he's against the types. It just means he's the fulfillment of the types. The language here is not important. The point is that Adam and Noah are types of Christ that find their fulfillment in the great and true Adam. And that's the language we use for typological fulfillment. We put true before it. True Adam, 
is Christ. Um, so when we talk about Israel, we'll talk about Israel as sort of a type, and Christ is the true Israel. He's the typological fulfillment of Israel. He's the true firstborn son. So where, where in um, Exodus, Israel is identified as God's firstborn son. Well, that was a firstborn failure son. Well, there's a true firstborn son, the true Israel, Jesus. So do you see how there, there are people or institutions that indicate patterns in the Old Testament that find fulfillment in Jesus? Okay. Now, I, what I want to suggest is that they find fulfillment in Jesus in the same way, like a light shining through a prism. So if the types are lights, but shadowy lights, they shine through the prism of Christ, they find fulfillment in him, but then they come in wide, beautiful, wondrous expression coming out the other side. Okay, so that's why later on we'll talk about, you know, Christ is the true Israel, but we'll talk about about the way that the church connects to Israel in the expression of the light shining through the prism later on. Um, or Christ is the fulfillment of the image of God. He's the true image of God. Yet there's a refracting of that in us, right? As, as we become God's image truly, and we, as John says, will become like him for we'll see him as he is. So, so typology is, um, it requires full canon reading, doesn't it? The, it's, it requires that full canonical horizon. Um, someone might suggest you're making this up. This is just the ideas of an English major who likes to see repeated patterns and, and identify significance to them. But the biblical authors do this using the same word. Um, so in Hebrews and Matthew and 1 Peter and 1 Corinthians 10, uh, there are different types that are identified by the biblical authors. Now, unfortunately, in many of our translations, that word type gets translated differently. Uh, so in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul will say something like, these things happened to them, but they were written down for us as a type. Well, most English Bible translations will put as examples for us. Well, we, we need to catch on to this, and in, in that's why we need many Bible translations that help highlight these things. But the biblical authors recognize types. Now, nobody debates this. Dispensation, covenant theologians, they, they all agree that types are there. This is where the disagreement lies. Can we identify types that the biblical authors don't? That, that's the question. I want to suggest that we can. I, I want to suggest that the biblical authors didn't have the opportunity to identify all of the types that are in the Bible. And I want to suggest even further that the types that they do identify become um, interpretive lessons for us so that we can learn how the biblical authors engaged in the text and we can imitate them. I, I think that that is the, we, we should learn how to interpret the Bible from the biblical authors who learned how to interpret the Bible from Jesus. So to be a Christian disciple and to read the Bible as Christians, I think is to follow in the footsteps of the Christians who went before us, especially the disciples and, and Jesus, the, the Messiah. Um, this is debated, though. Not everybody agrees, so I want to be clear about that. Um, some, some would say if the biblical authors don't identify this explicitly as a type, you cannot see it as a type. Well, I, I think that is misguided, and I like Peter Lightheart's way of putting it um, on page 7 there at the bottom. I want to read the Old Testament and the New Testament as a disciple of Jesus, and that means following the footsteps of the disciples' methods of reading the Bible. I, I think that's how we ought to read the Bible. Um, and this, I think, is the watershed moment. So if you want to identify where um, progressive covenantalism would differ from dispensational theology, this is it, I think. 
dispensational theology says we, we don't imitate the biblical authors. And there's this guy named Richard Longenecker, or Longenecker, I don't know how you pronounce his name, who says that exact thing. Um, in, in fact, I'm, I'm reading a commentary on Romans by him right now, and it's interesting to see his way of looking at Romans that says, Paul could do this because he was specially inspired, but we shouldn't read the Bible like Paul read the Bible. And I think that's misguided. Um, so we need to, I think, to read the Bible like Jesus does. Um, so what are the characteristics of typology? They involve repetition, they involve a movement from the lesser to the greater, and they're developed through the covenantal progression. So typology involves the repetition of a person, event, or institution. I briefly describe that with Adam. You have Adam, this guy who was in a garden. He sinned with uh, fruit in a way, and there was nakedness, and there was cursing. And then you get to Noah, who sinned in some way. There's nakedness involved. There's fruit of the vine in, in the wine, and then there's cursing that follows. Uh, both of them are given commands to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. There are all these parallels that make it really clear that Noah is the next iteration in the pattern of Adam. And then this continues on, I think, with Abraham. Abraham is a pagan who's called out of his pagan ways, and he's told you're going to have a lot of children. That's right, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Go into the land that I'm showing you. And so then you have Abraham is the next type of Adam. And ultimately you have Jesus, right? So there are these patterns that appear that take on um, expansion. They, they move from lesser to the greater. And ultimately they find their fulfillment in Christ. And, and that would be the anti-type. Um, the main point that I want to make in the way that that typology works is that they're developed through covenantal progression. And I'll illustrate this with the, the land promise. But the way that we understand these types and their place in redemptive history and where they're ultimately pointing is going to become clear as we consider what is its purpose, what's the purpose of this type in this section of redemption, redemptive history, in this covenantal context. All right? Um, this is not far-reaching or just making things up. It's exegeting the Bible on a canonical level. So I read one guy this week who said, if context is king, canonical context is king of kings. I like the way he put that. We, we need the whole canon's context. And when we read the Bible in light of the whole canon, we start to see these patterns more clearly as they develop and repeat and progress throughout redemptive history. Let me, before, before I get to the most debated section, let me ask if there are any questions uh, that you want to chase here. All right, what's shadowy in your brains now might become clear as we see it worked out and in the way that I think it should be worked out. And not just me, other people are saying this. Um, Wellum, Gentry, a lot of other people would, would suggest this is the way it should work. Um, I, want we, I want to look at the land promise in the Abrahamic covenant as a type. Now, the main people who would disagree with what I'm about to say would be those who are going to suggest that um, the, the Old Testament is predicting that national Israel will retake the land and that there will be a, a Davidic ruler over that land and then particularly during a 1,000-year a period in, in the future. Uh, this would be the dispensationalist view. Covenant theologians might disagree a bit with the way that I would trace this out, though they, I think they just jump too quickly from land to Jesus, and in, in they don't think about how the covenants progress and in, in the way this works out. Um, but, but this is the one that would be the, water, uh, the result of the watershed difference between dispensational and 
progressive covenantalism. Um, so I wanted to point it out here. And then as we get to the end of the class, we'll return to this idea after we've you know, gone through and worked through each biblical covenant. But I wanted to give everyone an idea of how progressive covenantalism reads the Bible, especially with a view to the types. All right, as I already mentioned, typology is not guesswork that abandons the text. Uh, nor does it merely highlight a spiritual fulfillment of a promise or a type. This is um, not the case. Instead, typological interpretation appeals to the biblical text. Now, when it comes to the land promise in the Abrahamic covenant, I want to suggest that there are clues in the text that indicate the land is not the end itself, but it's a means to the end. It's pointing to something greater. And even from the very beginning, the goal is an occupation of one a geographically limited parcel of land, but is I'll, I'll try to show the whole earth. Um, the, the land is a microcosm of the whole earth, um, and that's what it's pointing towards, all right? Um, so the textual warrant is found first in, in the fact that the land is included in the promise to Abraham um, in order to facilitate the other promises that are given to Abraham. So the land is going to serve as the base of operations for Abraham's offspring to dwell in and for the offspring to act as a blessing to the rest of the nations. In the primary way that that blessing would occur is through the building of a temple where God's presence can dwell in the land with the people. So the land has a functional purpose. It's not the end, it's a means to the end. It's going to be a place that will house Abraham's offspring and it will house God's presence. Those are the two main purposes for the land. Um, in the first stage, and, and I think there are two stages of fulfillment here. In the first stage, Abraham's little offspring would enter the land and the land would serve as a dwelling place for them. And then in the latter stage of fulfillment, in which Christ is Abraham's singular seed who blesses all the nation and whose redemption of the Gentiles now makes them Abraham's seed by faith, you come to realize that there's a latter stage of fulfillment that needs to take place and this little parcel of land cannot become a dwelling place for all of Abraham's seed by faith and by flesh. Abraham's family expands beyond the confines of, of the land. Um, but, but beyond that, I want to say that the geographically limited land is not sufficient to house God's presence. We'll see this in the development of the covenants. In, under the Mosaic covenant, God's presence would dwell in the temple. In the new covenant, God's, God's presence dwells in his people, in, in the church. In the church, it can't be confined to that land. It needs the whole earth. And, and so from the very beginning, the purpose of the land finds um, greater purpose in the, in the progression of the covenants. Okay, so that's where we're tracking. But I think we need to say that the land is not the end in itself. It's a means to the end. So we want to keep tracking towards that end. We want to track towards the end of the promise. All right. Um, second, the land in question is not as clearly defined as some people might want to say. So when we talk about uh, this land promise being fulfilled, we have to ask, well, which one and which land? Because the boundaries of the land are described differently in a bunch of different places. Um, so it's not a fixed reality. The borders of the land flex and, and they grow. And I, I think we need to conclude that the promise was never limited to just the land of Canaan. And there are two Old Testament texts that will indicate this and two New Testament. So in Genesis 24, 6, Abraham's servants and men understand that Abraham's heirs would possess the gates of their enemies. 
indicating that from Abraham's line would be warrior kings who expand the boundaries of the promised land as they possess the gates of their enemies, as they expand the borders of the promised land to eventually include the whole world. I, th- I think that's what's going on there. And that sounds a lot like the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? We'll come back to that. Um, but then in Genesis 15, 18 through 21, and all these other texts that I listed, uh, the land is described in different ways. Now, uh, critical scholars would say, well, that's because the Bible's been smushed together by a bunch of people who it's not coherent. I think a better thing to say is that the, the boundaries were always understood as being flexible. How flexible, we might ask? Well, the New Testament authors tell us. Well, in Romans 14, 13, when Paul comments on Abraham's fatherhood of both the circumcised and the uncircumcised, Paul remarks that the promise to Abraham and his descendants was not that they would inherit just the land of Canaan, but that they would inherit the whole world. So the New Testament authors say this land promise is is just a microcosm of the full promise, the full fulfillment of it. Um, And then the same, the author of Hebrews, whoever that was, understood that Abraham was looking for a city that has foundations whose architect and builder is God, this heavenly city that will descend to earth. This is picked up by the the later New Testament authors, John, as he describes this in Revelation 21 and 22. Okay, so we understand that the land promise is a type pointing to something that is yet to come. Now, Um, I want to briefly walk through the progression of the land promise in the covenants. Unlike dispensational theology who believes that the the land is introduced for the first time in the Abrahamic covenant, the land pattern begins all the way back in the garden. We could refer to this as the archetype. The Garden of Eden served as the temple residence for God's presence and the dwelling place for his people. That's how I just described the land promised to Israel, right? It's where God, it would house God's presence and it would house God's people. And they were to extend the boundaries of the garden until it covered the whole earth. That's the idea, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Expand it so that God's presence fills the earth as God's people fill the earth. Um, this tragically did not get carried out as Adam and Eve sinned, right? And so then you have your, the second Adam who was raised up like Adam, and he too was called to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth as God maintains his in initial creative purposes, right? He's, he's not going to destroy the earth again because he wants his people and his glory to fill the earth. So we hit the Noahic covenant. Um, Noah is, is a bad second Adam, though. So then we get to the third Adam figure, Abraham. And, and it's narrowed to this guy and his line. And his, his descendants are promised a land where they could dwell and where God's presence would dwell. And this uh, will take place, as we see, under the Mosaic covenant in two stages. First, as it works itself out under the Mosaic covenant, in Joshua 21, it's indicated that, that Israel received all that God had promised as they took over the land. So the author writes, So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to their ancestors, and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side. None of the good promises the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. Everything was fulfilled. Now, when we think about the purpose being fulfilled, one of the purposes was fulfilled. Now it's the land houses God's people. But under the Davidic covenant, um, the, how, the, the land now finds the fulfillment of its second purpose is it houses God's presence as Solomon builds the temple, right? So after Solomon builds the temple, there's this description. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea. That's fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant language. They were eating, drinking, rejoicing. Solomon ruled all the kingdoms. He had peace on all his surrounding borders. So the two purposes of the land have now been fulfilled as they house God's people and God's presence in the temple. 
Uh, Tragically, like Adam, Israel abandons the covenant. They're exiled just like Adam was from the garden. He's exiled from the land, so too are they exiled from the land. Yet the prophets hold out hope for return to the land. And and we might say, well, it's a return to that small parcel of land. But the fact is, when they do return to the land, only three tribes return to the land, uh, Benjamin, Levi, and Judah. And that's why the, the tribes who return to the land are referred to as Jews, um, derived from, from Judah. And, and God's presence doesn't return to the land. So even in the return from exile, it's as if the land has lost its purpose. It's not housing all of the tribes of Israel, and it's not housing God's presence. So what hope do the, the prophets lay out? Well, the way that they talk about hope for a true return for the land to, to um, house God's people and his presence is talked about in Isaiah 65 and 66 in terms of the new creation. So the way that the land will house God's presence and his people will take place in the new creation. That's the next stage of redemptive history. So what I'm trying to say is that we are now in the new covenant. And so we should not look back to a mosaic covenant-like fulfillment of a land promise, but a new covenant-like fulfillment where the whole earth houses God's people and his presence, and it does so in the church. That's what we read about in Ephesians. So we should not be looking for national Israel to, to return to the Lord and fill the land and for the temple to be built there. That's done away with. That's, that's old covenant. We're in the new covenant, and ultimately the fulfillment is in Christ, who is the true temple, and refracted through him is the body of Christ, who in the, the churches and individual people are being built up as a temple to be indwelt by God's presence, by the Spirit. That's what Paul teaches us in Ephesians. So, so what we've seen here, and we have one minute left, what you've seen is a canonical reading of the text, understanding the typological fulfillment. Oh, come on in. We're just finishing up. Uh, typological fulfillment of the land promise. All right, we have two, two minutes. Any questions there? Anything beyond that I'm happy to talk about afterwards. Do you see how this tracks? It, it, it makes sense, I think, very clearly, logically. It makes the Bible a lot more simple than, than the way I grew up reading it and, and understandable. Um, so I'm happy to talk about these things as we go, but um, I think this canonical context is truly king of kings when it comes to context. All right, let me pray for us. If you want to talk, I'm happy to talk afterwards. Father, thank you for your word and for the way that the covenants progress and find their fulfillment in Jesus. And so, so just as we hear from Paul that, that every promise of God is yes and an amen in him, we can say amen to the glory of God our Father. We pray that we would glorify you and that you would be glorified in us as we read and respond to your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you.